The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Join with me as we continue in our worship now through looking at God's Word together. If you wanted to open up your Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 5 today. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, if you want to borrow one, we've got a couple up here. The ushers can bring those to you. We will resume with Children's Church. Oh, there's some in the back too. Um, so keep your hands up until you get a Bible. I'm back there. <clears throat> we'll pick up with Children's Church next week, the first Sunday in May. This time continues to fly. Uh, by God's design, He set apart after the resurrection, Jesus Christ, and ascension into heaven. He wanted His church to formally set Sunday aside as the Lord's Day, uh, a time formerly when believers, Christians, saints from around the world in their local areas would come together and assemble as a body to worship God, to learn God's Word together, to encourage one another in fellowship, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. That's why we go to church on Sunday, because that's the New Testament model that Jesus has laid down. It's Resurrection Sunday. Um, And so what a wonderful privilege we have to come together as saints, remembering and celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, doing it corporately as believers together. And part of that worship to God is looking to His Word, the Scriptures, because this is how God speaks. Scripture is clear. God is clear that He said His Scripture is His Word. These are His thoughts written down for us, preserved graciously by Him throughout time, And God's Word, the truth of the Bible, is living and active. So when we hear it or read it, it penetrates our mind, our conscience, our heart, our soul, our very being. And God uses the truth of the living Word of God to enlighten us, to convict us, to encourage us, to teach us, to transform us. So that is the privilege we have every time we open God's Word together. So this isn't just a ritual that we're going through mechanically or anything like that. This is a a dynamic experience of interfacing with the very mind and thoughts of God. So let's go ahead and look to His Word in light of that context as He speaks to us His words. James 1 through 6 is what we're going to be covering today. Follow along as I read as James continues to write this letter to believers scattered abroad outside of Palestine. He says, Come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. That's what we want to talk about today. Wow. 
you read that and you just got to say, wow. So this is James, the apostle, not one of the 12 apostles, but raised up after he got saved, after he heard the gospel, after Jesus appeared to him in resurrection form, the half-brother of Jesus, rose to prominent early in the Jerusalem church, pastored there in Jerusalem for a couple of decades at least, and now he's getting feedback on these churches scattered abroad all over the place outside of Palestine. Writes this very personal letter to all these Christians. It was intended for many different churches to hear the contents of this letter. And we've reached an apex of his letter. A very personal section between chapters 3 and the beginning part of chapter 5. And he got into prophet mode in chapter 4. And many times the Old Testament prophets, whether it was Malachi, Amos... Isaiah, all those guys, at different times in their ministry, they had a ministry of rebuke and a ministry of confrontation. They had ministries of mercy and preaching and teaching, but they also had the specialized ministry like John the Baptist who went out and shouted, literally yelling at the top of his lungs, calling people to repentance. So John the Baptist was like an Old Testament prophet as well. And at times would be scathing in his rebuke. But he was speaking truth that people needed to hear. And so more than anywhere else in this epistle... James is in Old Testament prophet mode, preaching a message that God wants the people to hear, and it is scathing. There is nothing warm and fuzzy whatsoever about verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5. It's actually pretty harsh. It's heavy duty. It's quite somber, sobering. As a matter of fact, you might even ask, wow, James, this, this is not very loving the way you're talking to fellow Christians. But he was being moved by the Holy Spirit of God. We know that the words that he spoke were inspired of God and came from God, so it's legitimate. Regardless of what our thinking is, we've got to understand this is a message that God wanted people to hear and used James to communicate this message, this prophetic rebuke. I mean, earlier we saw it. He started warming up in chapter 4. With his very strong language as he was talking to the believers in chapter 4 and he's rebuking them for being divisive. By the way, chapter 3 and 4, James was rebuking these churches because he heard that many of these churches had divisive people in the churches. And they were stirring up problems in the church. And that's true of any church. It's true of any Christian church. It's been true of the church age for 2,000 years. Inevitably, God or Satan is going to use fellow human beings and then many times actual Christians to create division in the church. And that's what he was rebuking in chapter 3 and 4. He's look out for it. He was trying to expose it. If they were true Christians, he's telling them how they can correct it. The issue that was motivating it and driving it was individual pride by a select few in those churches. And Satan just loves that. That's one of his main strategies. If he can stir up division in the local church, it's a score. It is a touchdown for him. And one of the most successful ways that Satan can do that in the local church, is to stir up a few behind the scenes to create controversy, doubt, skepticism, just a nuance of seeds of negativism behind the scenes, behind the backs, especially of the leadership in these churches. This is a theme in every one of Paul's epistles. That is how Satan is most Successful using fellow believers behind the scenes, sowing seeds to undermine the leadership of every individual church. It's been true for 2,000 years, will continue to be. This is the strategy of Satan. And James is exposing it all, saying it needs to cease, desist, stop. It's driven by pride. Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. 
to preserve unity in the church, to be reminded of our proper place, humbled before God. And so that's kind of how he closed out chapter 4. And then he cranks it up even more into this scathing rebuke in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Well, here's the good news. And there is good news in all this. Uh, the good news in chapter 5, 1 through 6, I am convinced he is not talking to believers. As a matter of fact, every commentary that I read, they said the same thing. Who is he talking to? He is talking to uh, unbelievers. He's talking to unbelievers who live in close proximity of the Christians that he is writing and talking to. And he's, already, he's done this twice already in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2, where he was reminding Christians, uh, many of whom were scattered abroad, they were aliens, uh, they were undergoing hardships in life, due to either persecution, famine, a lack of material possessions, and they were being taken advantage of by the rich unbelievers in their prospective society or respective societies or counties and communities in which they lived. And so that also reaches an apex here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So really what James is doing is he's talking to the saints abroad, but really what he's doing is he's shouting out really loud because he knows that unbelievers are going to be listening in on his letter, listening in on this conversation, listening in on his rebuke, and he is allowing unbelievers, wicked, oppressive, influential unbelievers in the communities of these churches really to eavesdrop in on the message. And so James is, oh, i got a message for you. You rich, self-sufficient people who are oppressing the believers around the world, here is your message, and it is not a good or happy one. It's not encouraging at all. And that's what this is. This is a message to unbelievers, to all these Christians who live in these communities who are actually being oppressed by rich people. And they were looking around everywhere they went and seeing rich, influential people who seemed to have everything and all their ducks in order. And they ran society and they were in control of everything and they were the decision makers and they were the power or they were the movers and the shakers and, the, and wielded all the power. And so this is a susceptibility of every Christian in every age where believers, the longer we live in this life, we will become discontent and we might even be envying those in the world around us who seem to have it better than we do. And we're going to talk more about that. But that's James's intent here. So this is actually a way to encourage believers by the scathing rebuke that he's giving unbelievers who reside in these communities that he's actually had first-hand reports of oppressive persecuting unbelievers. Some may even profess to know God. Some may have been Old Testament Jewish uh, people who were committed to the Old Testament Scriptures who had not received Christ. Some of them may even trickled into churches. Some of them may even be professing believers but actually are not. That's who this rebuke is for. So that's why I called this self-sufficient unbelievers. And so what James is trying to do, he's trying to warn Christians, and this is appropriate for us as well. To be warned by James to take heed, we've got to watch out for oppressive or self-sufficient unbelievers in the world. And they are everywhere. As a matter of fact, they dominate and rule the world. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 5. And I just broke it down into three themes he's weaving together here uh, about things we, need to, things we need to realize about the self-sufficiency of your typical unbeliever, especially those who have this world's goods. And he's talking directly to these unbelievers. He is not talking to fellow believers. So point number one is we need to be aware of self-sufficient. And these, by the way, these are prosperous people in the world. Financially, 
terms of material possessions, power, influence. That's who this is. First thing we need to be aware of is their self-centered attitude. Self-centered attitude. When you are rich and you have this world's goods and you have power and influence, it's very easy to be self-centered and think about you or yourself all the time. And when you are self-centered in your attitude, it's just natural that you will ignore God, and that's what they did. These self-centered unbelievers who were persecuting believers that James is talking and that he had pastored, they had a self-centered attitude, and they ignore God in all their dealings. If you have this world's good, and you've got everything you've achieved, and your world is all just about making a buck and making finance and moving up the scale of influence in your job and your career and whatever else, and you're just living for self and living for money and living for the here and now material possessions with utter disregard for the consequences of the future, the afterlife, and you don't know God, then you are totally consumed with self. You are self-centered. And naturally, you ignore God. He is not in your equation. He's not in your paradigm of anything that you do. And that was true of these unbelievers here. And as a result, let's look at how they were. Look at their attitude. Come now, James says. Come now. It's a challenge to these unbelievers who are out of line and persecuting believers. Come now. i got a message for you. It's a very rare phrase in the New Testament. Come now, you rich. So it's almost he's daring them to listen up. And it's rich unbelievers. There there is no call to repentance, by the way. There's not a technical call to repentance. There's no optimism here in this passage in verses 1 through 6 like there was earlier in a similar way. There's no optimism. He doesn't give any hope or mercy whatsoever to these people, whoever they are. And that's why the commentators unanimously, and I agree, say he's talking to unbelievers here. There's a lot of reasons for it. Come now, you rich unbelievers. Weep and howl. That, that, isn't just, that is not a call to repentance. That is weep and howl in light of your just deserts that you're going to get from God that is sure and certain in the future and it's coming sooner than you think. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is the misery of God's wrath that's coming down on unbelievers because they have willfully knowingly, intentionally rejected God, the Almighty Creator, and Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. So they have the hand of the wrath of God pressing down upon them. They are conscious of this reality. They don't care. They snub Him off. They blow Him off. I don't want to pick on individual people, but I was just trying to think of who are people like this in our society that just have this absolutely arrogant, dismissive, blasphemous attitude towards Christianity, the Bible, God, and Jesus Himself. And there are plenty. As a matter of fact, they're writing books and they're best-selling books at Borders, in Amazon. Uh, Richard Dawkins is one of them. He is a, he's not just an atheist. He calls himself an anti-atheist and he lives for one reason and that is to destroy Christianity whatever means possible, especially through his books. Writing books, uh, and, and he's got a couple others who are alongside him. Bill Maher, the comedian and the guy that's on TV all the time, he specializes in that. He makes movies about mocking Christians. He's proud of it. That's what he lives for. He's very popular. He's very arrogant. He doesn't uh, hold back whatsoever. So there are people like this. And these people, they have money. They have power and influence in this world, in the systems of this world. They have a platform. They have a voice. And there's a lot of people actually listening to them. These aren't just innocent unbelievers who are inquiring and seekers that we need to be sensitive to. They have an agenda, and they've actually told us what their agenda is. It is the destruction of Christianity and the Bible. 
And that's who James is addressing. Look at John chapter 3. Jesus talked about the reality of what's going on in their life right now. And so you got a guy like Bill Maher. And it, is, it is possible that God could... I mean, Bill Maher has heard the Gospel a zillion times, by the way. If you don't know who he is, I was going to say you can Google him, but I almost encourage you not to do that. Because he's so... I don't want you to give him any more attention because he doesn't need any more. M-A-H-E-R. He is so outspoken. and on, He is on a crusade. He's willful. John 3. So here's Jesus talking about... Or we think this is Jesus. This is either John quoting or John quoting Jesus himself. John 3.36. Every human being on planet Earth falls into one, and two categories, one of two categories. And here they are by Jesus. Paul did the same thing. You are either a Christian who knows God personally through the person of Jesus Christ because you believed in His Gospel. And as a result, all of your sins have been forgiven. You've been justified. You have been supernaturally, spiritually adopted into the family of God. And you are a child of God and a younger brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Isn't that cool? You have the Spirit of God living in you as a Christian. The Bible is the Word of God and God has given you the ability to understand the very mind of God in Scripture as a believer. You're a part of the church. You've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness where you used to be a pawn of Satan himself and you have been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's your status if you are a Christian. All your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Your eternal, your salvation is eternally secure in Christ because of who He is and what He has done on your behalf. Isn't that good news? And your sins are forgiven. You are secure in Him. When God the Father looks down on you as a Christian right now, despite all your weaknesses, idiosyncrasies, shortcomings, sins, God the Father looks down on you and He literally sees the pristine, sinless Jesus Christ who was your substitute and my substitute on the cross. That is your status as a Christian in this life. That is awesome. That is good news. If you are not a Christian, then this is your status John 3.36. And I'll read it in just a second. You're an enemy of God. You are a child of wrath. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. You do not know God. You are a child of the devil. You are a pawn of Satan. Spiritually, you can understand nothing. You are without hope in the world. I'm not making this up. I'm quoting Bible verses. That's giving a biography of an unbeliever. And then Jesus adds this. Here's, if you are not a Christian today, this is a reality of what is true about you right now, present tense, in an ongoing manner, because that's what Jesus said in this verse. It is present tense. It is a lifestyle. Well, what is it? The one who believes in the Son, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. I live in a state of eternal life right now if I'm a Christian. Eternal life is not just living forever when I die. Did you know that eternal life actually starts in this life? Eternal life starts the moment you believe in Christ. And it lasts for all eternity. And it is a life of a personal relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, eternal life is knowing God in the right manner and having a proper, personal, intimate relationship with the Creator of the universe. That is eternal life. And there's so many other blessings that go along with that. 
So the one who believes in Jesus Christ properly, John 3.36, has right now eternal life in this life. That is your status. But, huge contrast. But, if you are not a child of God, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, like Bill Maher has, this is his status right now. And anybody else who rejects Jesus Christ willingly in this life right now. As opposed to knowing God and having forgiveness of sin and having eternal life in an ongoing manner, the middle of verse 36, but the wrath of God abides on you. Isn't that scary? The wrath of the Holy Creator, the infinite, all-powerful, eternal Holy Creator of the universe literally weighs down on you. And it continues to weigh down and it oppresses you and it follows you like a shadow wherever you go in this life. You can't escape it. And some unbelievers who are in this state of mind, they feel this because they have guilt that is inescapable. But they don't know how to get rid of the guilt. And then they choose to do things trying to get rid of the guilt, whether it's alcohol, drugs, They're trying to deaden the pain of this guilt that is actually the heavy cloud of God's almighty, wrathful hand chasing them down wherever they go. Then there are others who have become so hardened because they have stuck their fist in God's face and they've become so callous to the point that they now have a seared conscience, they don't feel guilt anymore. They don't feel guilt about rejecting Jesus Christ and His Gospel. They become utterly outspoken and blasphemous even though the wrath of God continues to pour down upon them wherever they go. That's bad news. The good news is you don't have to remain in that state of God's wrath weighing down upon you. All you've got to do is repent of your sin, turn to God, be merciful to me, God the sinner, Lord Jesus, save me, and He will. And then that cloud of God's wrath, His heavy hand of wrath is removed and His gracious hands of mercy and love take you and embrace you and adopt you into His family. It's it's that simple by believing in the Gospel. So that's the status of every human being on planet Earth. So let's go back to James chapter 5. And that's, that's what James is talking about. He is talking about these people who have willfully rejected Jesus Christ. Not only that, they hate Christianity. They oppress Christians. All they want is this world's goods. That's their only agenda. They only live for the here and now. They don't care about the afterlife. They don't care about consequences. They have violated their conscience. They have seared their conscience. They persecute Christians. They hate Christians. They will wield whatever they can in society, even the laws of the land, to undermine Christianity, to advance themselves and their own agendas. Man, we see that in our culture today, don't we? Using the courts, using the law, using the political system. It's very specifically mentioned later in this passage, by the way, in verse 5 and 6. So, these are the people that we're talking about. This, he's not talking to believers. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Yeah, you, you're living high on the hog right now in this life, but you need to realize, unbeliever, what is yet to come. It's a sober warning. Verse 2, well, what were they doing? So this is their attitude. Their attitude is it is atheistic. They don't want God to be a part of it. Uh, their attitude is also that it's all about the here and now. Immediate gratification. Their attitude is also it's all about self-advancement and self-centeredness and me, me, me. Their attitude is also it's all about material possessions and wealth and amassing as much as we possibly can, as fast as we can in this life. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. Who cares? Verse 2, your riches, well, they're rich. 
They've amassed riches. And then James says, well, your riches, they're not going to last. Have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Have you heard that? A hearse is where a dead person is being taken to the funeral home. And there's not a trailer on the back of all the goods that those people have amassed so that they could take it with them. And that's what James is getting at. Yeah, you got riches, but they're not going to last. You don't get to take those to the next life with you. As a matter of fact, those riches that you have amassed in this lifetime that you have deprived from giving to others who are in need, they're going to actually be a tangible witness against you in the next life from God and Jesus the judge. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. These are, you know, they amass clothing, riches in a superfluous manner, in a self-centered manner. Verse 3, he says, your gold and your silver. By the way, gold and silver, if it's pure, it doesn't rust. So here's God's going to do a miracle. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Your gold and your silver, it's going to rust. It is going to be judged by God. It's not going to last. That's what he's saying. Silver and gold have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. So they've got the wrong attitude. So this is a sobering warning to these oppressive people. Let's go on. He goes on in more detail. Not only does he talk about their attitude, now uh, he talks about their actions, which we've been alluding to. Let's talk more about that. Point number two, in addition to their self-centered attitude, they have self-serving actions. Self-serving actions. Well, what do they do? Well, they defraud others. It's all about them. They're not fair to others. They take advantage of people. They do everything to further their own agenda. So look at verse 3. Actually, verse 4, how they defraud other people. He rebukes their attitude and then he says, and here's the evidence of what they've been doing. It's how they've been treating believers uh, that they've been interacting with. Well, behold, here's what you've been doing. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. Okay, so he's talking to wealthy people financially. Uh, landowners. By the way, he is not saying that if you own your own land or a house, you're evil. We're going to talk about that. He's talking to unbelievers who are totally self-centered and guilty of a very specific sin. And what was that? Well, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. These are huge, massive fields probably that they own. Grain fields. Acres and acres. And they go out and hire day laborers to do their work. And that day that was very common in Palestine. And your agreement when you hired a day laborer early in the morning when you pick him up 2,000 years ago in front of Home Depot was, I mean, what am I saying? When you pick up the, the day laborer early in the morning, you agreed to a wage and the job description of the day. Go mow my field, do those two acres. When you're done, come get me or you can work till 4 o'clock. I'll come see you at 4 o'clock and then you will get your pay and you'll get such and such amount. And then they agree to it, boom. And in that culture... You were obligated to pay that day. That's just the way you did business. That was the fair thing to do. That was the honest thing to do. That was the right thing to do. That was the biblical thing to do. To pay the laborer for his labor and not deprive him. By the way, James is writing a letter to believing Jews. Believing Jews. And more than likely, a lot of these believing Jews are actually living in areas where there's Jewish uh, population is dominant. So he's 
probably giving a rebuke to Jewish unbelievers who are the landowners who are being oppressive. And these rich landowners are hiring believers who are day laborers who, who's that day, that paycheck that day is their breakfast tomorrow. If they don't get paid today, they're in trouble for tomorrow. And so if they are Jewish in their worldview, no doubt they understood the Old Testament, the law of Moses. And I want you to look at one. Go to Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 13. Because this is the background and the backdrop for this command. In that part of the world, kind of like America, you know, that was started, what, 240 years ago or whatever it was. And we, we kind of, it was within the, uh, a worldview of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And there were some things that were just embedded in the fabric of our culture and that were just commonly understood as a worldview and understood to be true. And much of that was basic biblical truth that leaked into, Christi- uh, into American culture and our Constitution. And that's still true today that the basic dominant worldview is a Judeo-Christian ethic here in America. Becoming less and less so, but still it is true. Well, that was all in, in Palestine 2,000 years ago. The dominant worldview in the milieu of the day was a mosaic understanding as in Moses and the law of Moses in terms of the ethics and the morals and the laws and the way they conducted business and what was just understood to be the right way to do things. This was not foreign even to unbelievers because they were so conversant and familiar, many of them, with the mosaic law. And here was a basic, one of the basic mosaic laws of day-to-day living, Leviticus 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. This is not talking about going into somebody's house taking their money. How, do you, how should you not rob somebody? Well, specifically, the employer should not rob the employee. Well, what are you talking about? Well, the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you, the employer, all night until morning. A, guy, a day labor comes and does work for you and he puts in ten hours, then you need to pay him that day before he goes home. That was the Mosaic Law. If you didn't do that, you violated the law. It was not legitimate to make up excuses and say, well, you know, can I pay you tomorrow? No, come back next Tuesday. That was a violation of this law. These were day laborers. There was no tomorrow. It was sinful to hold on for whatever reason. It didn't matter. There was no excuse. Verse 14, you shall not curse... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, later on in the chapter, it's the same thing. But uh, love your neighbor by paying him, showing him. But the point is, the labor is worthy of his wages. The labor is worthy of his wages. Deuteronomy says the same thing. Do not muzzle the ox while he's treading and doing the work. The labor is worthy of his wages. In other words, if you work hard, you deserve to get paid. You don't need to feel guilty to go get a paycheck when you've put in the work agreed upon to do that work. That's how God has orchestrated and designed society. Money is not evil, by the way. It is not sinful to have money. It is not sinful to work for money. It is not sinful to get paid for the wages you deserve for working hard. That's how God allows society to function. And even the Mosaic Law, very specific, if a day laborer works a day, then you need to pay him at the end of the day. And you don't sleep on your heavy pocketbook and decide to pay him tomorrow or later on. That was basic. And that's what these unbelievers were doing, depriving those who deserve to get paid. Go back to James chapter 5. Here are their sinful actions as they were defrauding others of their labor, of their pay, those who deserved it. In other words, they they weren't honoring their contract. It was a verbal contract. It was a one-day contract. 
They weren't honoring. They had the means to do so. They had more than enough to do so, by the way. But it was a way to manipulate and advance their own personal agenda. Verse 4. So, I mean, this is a good challenge for us who are employees or anybody here that's an employee. If you have people working for you, do you pay them on time? Are you a good boss? Are you courteous? Do you give them what they deserve? Do you all these things? Are you do you recognize their needs before God as a faithful steward of what He's given to you? Christians should be the best employers in the world, shouldn't they? As employers, Christians should have the highest ethic, the highest standard. Christians should be the best people to work for. That's not always true, though, is it? But it should be. Behold. In other words, I can't believe what you are doing. That's what the behold means. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, you agreed upon it, they did it, they got the job done, and you withheld pay. And which has been withheld by you. See, they withheld the pay. It, and the, the pay that you owe them cries out to God from earth. And God is a just God. And you know what? He is paying attention. He's listening. He is going to give justice to those who have been defrauded. If not immediately, it's inevitably it is coming. It will either be immediately in this life at some point or in the next life. And you don't want to wait till the next life because that will get ugly. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached, get this, has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord Almighty, as the NIV says. The best translation is the Lord of hosts. It's a great name of God. The Lord of hosts. We'll talk more about the Lord of hosts and what it means and its implications in point number three. But part of the actions that they were doing that was defrauding others, they were just withholding pay that should have gone to those workers and then other actions they were doing, verse 5. So meanwhile, they're not paying what is due and look at how they're living, verse 5. You have lived luxuriously, luxuriously on the earth in a superfluous manner. You have way more than you need. You waste. That's what that means. They are wasting. They have amassed all kinds of wealth and materialism and they're wasting it while they should be paying those who need it and actually those who deserve it. So this is hypocritical, lavish living. You've lived luxuriously on the earth. You led a life of wanton pleasure. Everything they do is just to, to please themselves. Come and go. They, got, uh, they can fly anywhere they want to in their own private Learjet. They've got, uh, what are those fancy long cars that take you everywhere you want to go that cost a lot of money? Uh, limousines, yeah, limousines. Uh, everybody serves at their pleasure. Personal maids, personal bodyguards. Uh, not a care in the world, uh, apparently, on the surface. They've got it all. Waste, waste, waste. Utter disregard for those who deserve and aren't getting paid. They live so luxuriously, so wantonly, feeding their pleasures. The middle of verse 5 says, they have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. And the imagery here is they just keep feeding their face and feeding their face and feeding their like Jabba the Hut. You know that big fat dude? Can't even move. That they are so, they have become so fattened that they are now prime, ironically, for the day of slaughter by God Himself when God slaughters a big, fat ox. The day of judgment is coming. And that's what He's getting at. So their attitude is dismissing God. Their actions are defrauding others by not paying what is due and living for self. And then that brings us to point number three. 
as a result of living that way, atheistically, oppressively, unlovingly, self-centeredly, that brings judgment. So number three is their self-inflicted accountability. James, as a prophet, he didn't feel sorry for these people. They brought it on themselves. What you sow, you reap. That's one of the laws, spiritual laws, that God has by which He's created the world and how we live. What you sow, you will reap. And we saw earlier in that story that Jesus is talking about, the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. That was a true story, by the way. And Lazarus, who was a poor man and begging by Lazarus' house, Lazarus totally disregarded him. I mean, uh, the poor man totally disregarded Lazarus. Lazarus died, went to heaven. Uh, the rich man died and ended up in hell. And he faced judgment for neglecting the poor, not being a loving human being, abusing the riches that he had. That's similar to what James is talking about. There is condemnation coming. There is accountability. Nobody's going to get away with anything in this life. If they, don't, if they don't get punished in this life, they will be held accountable in the next life. That is the emphasis all throughout verses 1 through 6 that James is trying to get at for these unbelievers. So look at verse uh, actually, a couple of verses I want to look at here in terms of their self-inflicted accountability that they're going to face from God. The emphasis is that this accountability isn't necessarily going to come in this life. That is so important for us as Christians to remember. When we are suffering, we are in pain, we are persecuted, God does not guarantee that we're going to get justice in this life. As a matter of fact, when you're a Christian, it usually doesn't come in this life, right? But it will a 100% of it will come in the next life. We live for the next life. That is one definition of a Christian. And that's true here because justice is coming, but the, the verbs, almost all of them, are future, James says. It's not in this life. It is in the next life. It is guaranteed, though, you're going to be miserable for being oppressive in this life, for hardening your heart towards God and towards your fellow man, which are the two greatest commandments that God has required of His people. Love God, love man. They haven't been doing that. By the way, unbelievers are being held accountable for those two laws. You know, some Christians say that, well, unbelievers, they can't be held accountable for God's truth and God's law. Yeah, they can. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being was created by God. The Creator God is going to hold every human being accountable for His truth. And two of the most basic truths that every human being is going to be held accountable was for loving God and loving your fellow man. It's clear all over the Scripture. It's clear in Matthew 25. It's clear right here. Your misery is coming upon you, verse 1. It is future. It's at the end of the age. You're going to be judged. All your riches are going to come to naught. They mean nothing. They won't help you in the next life. They won't protect you. Verse 3. Your gold and your silver, even your most valuable possessions, will be absolutely worthless and will be rotted and judged and burned by God Himself. So much so in the middle of verse 3. This is an imagery of the fires of hell that Jesus talked about. Everything you have... Value, love, will, be con will consume your flesh like fire. See, that's the imagery of the fires of hell that is eternal, that is conscious, that is perpetual, that is physical in the next life. That is the teaching of the Bible. That's the teaching of Jesus. He is telling these unbelievers, you face eternal hell by the way you live and your attitude towards God and your fellow man. An eternal, conscious, fiery hell. When is it? Verse 3, it is in the last days. The time of judgment. Everything you do in this life will be used as evidence against you in the next life if you're an unbeliever as you go into eternity. All these warnings, behold, behold, verse 4, and especially when you oppress fellow believers, I mean Christians. So a time of judgment is coming. 
The time of recompense is coming. It will be thorough, comprehensive, 100%. It will be in the last days. It will be with fire. It will be spearheaded by God Himself who is known at the end of verse 4 as the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, Lord Almighty. And it's the Lord of hosts taken right out of one of the names of God in the Old Testament. I put there in your notes that in the little book of Malachi alone, it's used Lord of hosts all those times in chapter 1. And that phrase, Lord of hosts, is used at least 23 times in Malachi's little book. And Malachi was a prophet who preached and spoke against social injustice in society by those who oppressed the poor, the needy, the orphans, the widows, the righteous. And he said, the Lord of hosts will come and visit you and bring recompense. And the names of God are very specific and they speak to the character of God and the actions that He will invoke in that role. The Lord of hosts. Or Savior is a name for God that means Jesus will save sinners. Elohim means God is Creator. Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth. He is the Lord of hosts. What is a host? A host is an army. Well, who are the armies? The armies of heaven. Well, who are they? They are the angels. There are a lot of them. Did you know that one angel can take on and beat up at least 24,000 human beings? Wow. And you've got an army of supernatural angels by God's side who are going to come down at the time of judgment and they are going to judge unbelievers. Not just God Almighty Himself, but His angels who come with Him. Judgment is coming from the Lord of hosts. His armies of powerful, supernatural angels. Wow! That's frightening. I am glad that I am on their side. I'm going to be behind that army of angels following them. Or maybe flying on my white horse. But anyway... I'm staying out of the way. So he's given him a fair warning. But again, there's no call to repentance. There's no optimism or hope, as I said earlier. It is sure. It is certain. And probably most of these people have hardened their hearts so hard, they become so callous, they're not going to turn. They're not going to turn. And some of the things also specifically they're going to be judged for and held accountable for in verse 6. What some of these rich people have done, like I said, they were wielding the political society, the legal society, because they had access to politics and the legal system, either through bribery, their wealth, their position, that they manipulated the legal system and the political system to their advantage to oppress those below them, whether it was Christians or their employees, to the point in verse 6 it says, you have condemned the righteous. How do they condemn them? They condemned them to death. In other words, they broke the law. They hired day laborers. They were supposed to pay them their due. They didn't. They neglected it. They didn't neglect it for a day. They neglected it for even weeks to the point that where those people who didn't get paid died of starvation. That's what it's talking about. And instead of being taken to court and sued or held accountable in light of Leviticus 19.13, they controlled the legal system so that they protected themselves from the law itself. In other words, they had a cop bribed and a judge bribed and a whoever and a jury bribed. So this is legal terminology that's being used here. Part of their vile, vicious, hateful, ungodly actions towards those that they were oppressing. And that is James's judgment towards these people, towards these unbelievers. So you go if you're a Christian, you go. James was not talking to me in James chapter five, one through six. I am not there. Whoo. But maybe you know somebody personally who is in James 5, 1 through 6. You might be thinking, well, if, it, if I'm not in verses 1 through 6, then this doesn't apply to me. Well, yeah, it does. Because there are principles that apply to every Christian, so that's what I want to close with. Uh, just three principles from this passage. 
as unbelievers hopefully are eavesdropping in on this conversation and this letter that James wrote to believers everywhere. Because really what James is doing, he's, he's still addressing the churches and the believers. He's mentioned rich people and the trials that come with being rich already in the first four chapters to Christians. And when you do have material wealth, when you do have this world's goods, you are vulnerable and susceptible to certain sins like self-sufficiency. And along with that is pride. And the theme of chapters 3 and 4 is self-sufficiency and pride in your attitude. And so I think he's rebuking the reality of the judgment of these rich, materialistic, oppressive unbelievers to warn Christians that, you know what, this lifestyle of the wealthy and the rich and famous in this world and them having everything, that you shouldn't covet that. You shouldn't want that lifestyle. You shouldn't be living for it. It's not real. It is shallow. It is superficial. You only see them on the front of a magazine and on television and it's all edited and it's all makeup and you don't see what's behind their lives. And every once in a while, the curtain gets pulled away and we actually get to see behind the lives and the personal lives of some of these rich and famous movie stars. And you know what? It ain't going so well, is it? As half, or many of them on drugs and alcohol and division and all kinds of horrible things happening in their personal life because there, there's no satisfaction because you can't be satisfied with material things of this world, whether it's riches or fame. It is only a relationship with God and Jesus Christ and the truth of His Word that satisfies the human soul, right? So they're hiding it. It is a facade is all it is. And Christians get duped into that. Whether it's watching television, reading the Fitchkin books, on and on it goes. Do not be duped. And that is the lesson James wants to tell us. And three-fold lesson for us that we can take away from this regarding this message to the rich. Uh, point number one, practical lesson to take away for us as believers. Do not envy the rich people of the world. Have you ever envied the rich people of the world? I have at one time or another. Uh, and I want you to look at one passage with each one of these three points. We'll just read it real quick. Uh, the first one is Psalm 73. Christian, do not envy the rich people of the world. Do not envy those who seem like they have it all together and they have power and they have fame and they, have, and they seem like they're so happy. Because after all, they got that plastic smile painted on there. Right? Well, not so. That's not reality. And so the psalmist here, in this is Asaph in Psalm 73. He actually struggled with this at times as a believer. He actually envied rich people in his society at times. And he came to his senses and he realized, that, that's, I can't do that. And so he's kind of helping us out by the fact that he wrote this down so that we won't envy the rich people of this world either. Um, 73, Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is... You could put, if you're a Christian, you could put your name in there. Surely God is good to Cliff. Surely God is good to Matt. Surely God is good to Nathan. Surely God, right? It's a good God. We got a good God. Why do we need anything else? Why do we need to envy sinners? Why do we need to envy and want to have money? We got a good God. Surely God is good to the believer, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, but see, there's the contrast. At one time, I used to think this way. It was detrimental. It was wrong. I was off focus. It's a stumbling block. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Well, what did you do? My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of the proud. Well, why were they proud and arrogant and self-sufficient? Because they had this world's goods. Middle, second part of verse 3. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There it is. That's Hollywood. 
Wow, for there are no pains in their death. The reason I envy them, there's no pains in their death, man. Nothing ever goes wrong for those people. I want that life. I want the life of the rich and famous. That's what he was, that was when he was thinking wrong. And their body is fat. They got everything they need. And then he goes, and then he comes back to reality and says, you know what? That's not true. So, Christian, do not envy rich people of the world. Point number two, practical application that we can take away from James' warning to these rich who will be judged. Do not desire money and possessions. Do not long for, lust after money and possessions. You should only long for God, long for His truth, long for Jesus, long for the truth, right? Long for His forgiveness and mercy. And then I'll give the third one, and then we'll read the same passage together because it addresses both of them. So don't desire money and possess. By the way, if you desire and run after money, what's going to happen? It grows wings and it flies away. You can never catch it. It's like a shadow, isn't it? And then when you do have it, boom, it could be gone like that. So don't desire or long for money and possessions. And finally, be content. Be content with what you have. Be content where you are. Be totally content where you are. If you have money, you don't have money. You have a lot, you don't have a lot. That is the secret of Christian maturity is being content where you are, your lot in life before God. He is totally in control of all things. He knows what you have. He knows what you don't have. Are you content in Him and your relationship with Him? That's really all that matters. So those last two points, let's look at 1 Timothy 6 and we'll close these two great uh, reminders from the Apostle Paul. It's not about being rich in this life. So 1 Timothy, the close of that epistle. By the way... uh, there were rich Christians in Paul's day and Paul didn't rebuke them for being rich. He just said, if you're rich, you're actually susceptible to certain sins. And actually, if you're not rich, you're also susceptible to certain sins. So actually, these two points apply to every single one of us. If you're rich this morning, there's something for you. If you are not rich this morning, there's something for you as a Christian. And, and here they are. If, if you're not rich, you're susceptible to desiring and wanting more and more money. Oh, if I could just get that lottery ticket. And you're always talking about that lottery ticket. Ha, ha, ha. You know, that's an indication that you're not content. You're longing for the wrong thing. Okay, so Paul's words first. To those who don't have a whole lot of money and he wants them to be content, um, he starts at 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. There it is. Be content with what you have. Why, Why should we be content with what we have? Verse 7. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We came in naked, we're leaving naked. Verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Wow, there it is. If we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. Content and thankful. Instead of moaning and groaning and whining. Which is so easy for us to do as fallen humans. Be content, verse 9. But those who want to get rich, see there it is. It's not those who are rich, it's those who want to get rich. Desire, see it's the desire. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. These are Christians and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the lust of money, the abuse of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some Christians by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Wrong attitudes and actions about money got Christians in trouble. True today. Point don't desire money and possessions in an inappropriate manner. And then finally, the last one, be content. Oh, uh, so he's talking to Christians who don't have money. So look at verse 17. 
These are Christians who actually have money. And he has this special warning for them. Instruct those in your church. Instruct fellow Christians who are rich with material goods in this present world. Notice he doesn't say that they should give all their money away. Or they should give all their money to the church and the pastor. You don't have to do that. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. See? Not, don't be self-sufficient. Don't think you did it all by... The only reason you have money is because God allowed you to get it. That's it. They shouldn't be conceited, uh, but rather they're to fix their hope on the... Uncer- yeah, they need to uh, be reminded about the uncertainty of riches. They need to fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. See, the focus is God, God, God. Verse 18, rich people, rich, rich Christians, you need to spend your time doing good. You need to be rich in good works along with your wealth. And you need to be generous with your money. And you need to be ready to share with others who have needs. Verse 9, when you do that, you'll be storing up for yourselves treasures of a good foundation for the future in heaven when you greet your blessed Savior, and God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so today, we even have an opportunity to share, if you want to, this is just a free will offering at the end of the, as you're leaving today, we'll have the uh, baskets where you can put an offering in there if you want to that goes to the Benevolence Fund. Benevolence comes from the word good, being good to others. And then we take that money, put it in the Benevolence Fund, and we actually use that money every single month we want to give that money away. And we want to give that money away to help people in our church who have immediate, spontaneous needs, usually of a crisis-type need that was unexpected, where they're in a position where they just can't afford it. Whether it's a medical bill, uh, a car problem, uh, something with their house, groceries, food. And we are actively looking for ways to meet the needs of our saints every single month. And I just want to thank you one more time this church has been incredibly generous for the four years that we've been taking the Benevolence Fund. So thank you for your generosity. Praise God for the people of GBF. With that, let's go ahead and close our day in prayer and commit our time to Him. Father, we do thank You for our time together and a day of worship that You have provided for Your saints. Uh, God, we know that the content of James 5, it is sobering. It's frightening, not just for unbelievers, but also for those of us who are believers who have loved ones who don't know You. And we long for their salvation. We know the reality of what is coming. God, uh, just continue to work on the hearts of those that don't know You to draw them to Yourself, that they might be saved and turn to You and be rescued. And motivate us as believers to continue to pray for the lost, pray for our lost family members, our neighbors, and also to tell them about Your glorious good news, the Gospel and Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank You also for meeting our needs, God. Help us today just with being content with food and clothing and a place to lay our head. And when we go to sleep at night, God, I just pray that You'd remind us to say thank You to You. You deserve all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.